0: Book Six, Chapter Three of the Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Three History of Eleven Cake of Maize. At the epoch of this history, the cell in the Tour Roland was occupied. If the reader desires to know by whom, he has only to lend an ear to the conversation of three worthy gossips who, at the moment when we have directed his attention to the rat-hole, were directing their steps toward the same spot, coming up along the water's edge from the chatelet towards the greve. Two of these women were dressed like good bourgeoisie of Paris. Their fine white ruffs, their petticoats of linsey-woolsey striped red and blue, their white knitted stockings with clocks embroidered in colors, well drawn upon their legs, the square-toed shoes of tawny leather with black soles and above all their headgear that sort of tinsel horn loaded down with ribbons and laces which the women of champagne still wear in company with the grenadiers of the imperial guard of russia announced that they belong to that class wives which holds the middle ground between what the lackeys call a woman and what they term a lady they wore neither rings nor gold crosses, and it was easy to see that, in their ease, this did not proceed from poverty, but simply from fear of being fined. Their companion was attired in very much the same manner, but there was that indescribable something about her dress and bearing which suggested the wife of a provincial notary. One could see, by the way in which her girdle rose above her hips, that she had not been long in Paris, add to this a plaited tucker, knots of ribbon on her shoes, and that the stripes of her petticoat ran horizontally instead of vertically, and a thousand other enormities which shocked good taste. The two first walked with that step peculiar to Parisian ladies showing Paris to women from the country. The provincial held by the hand a big boy, who held in his a large flat cake. We regret to be obliged to add that, owing to the rigor of the season, he was using his tongue as a handkerchief. The child was making them drag him along, non pessibus sequis, as Virgil says, and stumbling at every moment, to the great indignation of his mother. It is true that he was looking at his cake more than at the pavement. Some serious motive, no doubt, prevented his biting it, the cake for he contented himself with gazing tenderly at it. But the mother should have rather taken charge of the cake. It was cruel to make a tantalus of the chubby-cheeked boy. Meanwhile the three damoiselles, for the name of dames was then reserved for noblewomen, were all talking at once. "'Let us make haste, Demoiselle Mahiette,' said the youngest of the three, who was also the largest, to the provincial. I greatly fear that we shall arrive too late. They told us at the Châtelet that they were going to take him directly to the pillory. Ah, bah! What are you saying, Mademoiselle Houdard-Meunier?' interposed the other Parisienne. "'There are two hours yet to the pillory. We have time enough. Have you ever seen any one pilloried, my dear Mahiette?' "'Yes,' said the Provincial, at Rheims. "'Ah, bah!' What is your pillory at Rheims, a miserable cage into which only peasants are turned? A great affair, truly!" "'Only peasants,' said Mahiette. "'At the cloth-market in Rheims. We have seen very fine criminals there, who have killed their father and mother. Peasants! For what do you take us, Gervase?' It is certain that the Provincial was on the point of taking offence for the honour of her pillory, fortunately that discreet damoiselle Oudard Mounier turned the conversation in time. "'By the way, damoiselle Mayette, what say you to our Flemish ambassadors? Have you as fine ones at Rheims?' "'I admit,' replied Mayette, "'that it is only in Paris that such Flemings can be seen.' "'Did you see among the Embassy that big ambassador who is a hosier?' asked Oudard. "'Yes,' said Mayette, "'he has the eye of a Saturn.' "'And the big fellow, whose face resembles a bare belly,' resumed Gervaise. "'And the little one, with small eyes framed in red eyelids, pared down and slashed up like a thistle-head?' "'Tis their horses that are worth seeing,' said Udard, "'caparisoned as they are after the fashion of their country.' "'Ah, my dear!' interrupted Provincial Mahiette, assuming in her turn an air of superiority. What would you say, then, if you had seen in sixty-one, at the consecration at Rheims, eighteen years ago, the horses of the princes and of the kings' company? Housings and comparisons of all sorts! Some of damask cloth, a fine cloth of gold furred with sables, others of velvet furred with ermine others all embellished with goldsmith's work and large bells of gold and silver! And what money they had cost! And what handsome boy pages wrote upon them!" "'That,' replied Udard dryly, "'does not prevent the Flemings having very fine horses, and having had a superb supper yesterday with Monsieur the provost of the merchants at the Hôtel de Ville.' Where they were served with comfits and hippocras and spices and other singularities. What are you saying, neighbor? Exclaimed Gervaise. It was with Monsieur the Cardinal at the Petit Bourbon that they supped, not at all at the Hotel de Ville. Yes, indeed, at the Petit Bourbon. It was at the Hotel de Ville, retorted Udard sharply. And Doctor Scarabla addressed them in a harangue in Latin, which pleased them greatly. My husband, who is a sworn bookseller, told me. It was at the Petit Bourbon, replied Gervase, with no less spirit, and this is what Monsieur the Cardinal's procurator presented to them twelve double quarts of Hippocras, white, claret, and red, twenty four boxes of double Lyon Marchepin, gilded, as many torches, worth two livres apiece and six demikus of bonnet wine, white and claret, the best that could be found. I have it from my husband, who is a cinquantenier at the Parlois aux Bourgeois, and who was this morning comparing the Flemish ambassadors with those of Prester John and the Emperor of Trébizon, who came from Mesopotamia to Paris, under the last king, and who wore rings in their ears. "'So true is it that they supped at the Hôtel de Ville,' replied Oudard, but little affected by this catalogue, "'that such a triumph of viands and comfits has never been seen. I tell you that they were served by Lessec, sergeant of the city, at the Hôtel du Petit Bourbon, and that that is where you are mistaken. At the Hôtel de Ville, I tell you.' "'At the Petit Bourbon, my dear.' and they had illuminated with magic glasses the word hope which is written on the grand portal. At the Hôtel de Ville, at the Hôtel de Ville, and Uzan lavoie played the flute. I tell you no, I tell you yes, I say no." Plump and worthy Houdard was preparing to retort, and the quarrel might, perhaps, have proceeded to a pulling of caps, had not Mahiette suddenly exclaimed, Look at those people assembled yonder at the end of the bridge. There is something in their midst that they are looking at. In sooth, said Gervase, I hear the sounds of a tambourine. I believe tis the little Esmeralda, who plays her mummeries with her goat. Eh, hey, be quick, Mayette, redouble your pace and drag along your boy. You are come hither to visit the curiosities of Paris. You saw the Flemings yesterday you must see the gypsy to "'The gypsy!' said Mahiette, suddenly retracing her steps and clasping her son's arm forcibly. "'God preserve me from it! She would steal my child from me! Come, Eustache!' And she set out on a run along the quay towards the greve, until she had left the bridge far behind her. In the meanwhile the child whom she was dragging after her fell upon his knees. She halted breathless. Udard and Gervaise rejoined her. "'That gypsy steal your child from you,' said Gervaise. "'That's a singular freak of yours.' Mahiette shook her head with a pensive air. "'The singular point is,' observed Udard, "'that La Sachette has the same idea about the Egyptian woman.' "'What is La Sachette?' asked Mahiette. "'Eh,' said Udard, "'Sister Gudule.' And who is Sister Gudule?" persisted Mayette. "'You are certainly ignorant of all but your rhymes not to know that,' replied Udard. "'Tis the recluse of the rat-hole.' "'What?' demanded Mayette. "'That poor woman to whom we are carrying this cake?' Udard nodded affirmatively. "'Precisely. You will see her presently at her window on the greve.' She has the same opinion as yourself of these vagabonds of Egypt, who play the tambourine and tell fortunes to the public. No one knows whence comes her horror of the gypsies and Egyptians. But you, Mahiette, why do you run so at the mere sight of them?" "'Oh!' said Mahiette, seizing her child's round head in both hands, "'I don't want that to happen to me which happened to Paquette-la Chantefleurie.' Oh, you must tell us that story, my good Mahiette," said Gervase, taking her arm. "'Gladly,' replied Mahiette. "'But you must be ignorant of all but your Paris not to know that. I will tell you, then—but not necessary for us to halt that I may tell you the tale—that Paquette La Chantefleurie was a pretty maid of eighteen when I was one myself, that is to say, eighteen years ago and tis her own fault, if she is not to-day, like me, a good, plump, fresh mother of six-and-thirty, with a husband and a son. However, after the age of fourteen it is too late. Well, she was the daughter of Bertante, minstrel of the barges at Rheims, the same who had played before King Charles VII at his coronation, when he descended our river Veselais from Sillery to Mouisson, when Madame the Maid of Orleans was also in the boat. The old father died when Paquette was still a mere child. She had then no one but her mother, the sister of Monsieur Pradon, Master Brazier and Coppersmith in Paris, Rue Farm-Garlan, who died last year. You see, she was of good family. The mother was a good, simple woman, unfortunately and she taught Paquette nothing but a bit of embroidery and toy-making, which did not prevent the little one from growing very large and remaining very poor. They both dwelt at Rheims, on the river-front, Rue des Follet-Paine. Mark this, for I believe it was this which brought misfortune to Paquette. In 61, the year of the coronation of our King Louis the Eleventh, whom God preserve, Paquette was so gay and so pretty that she was called everywhere by no other name than La Chante Fleury, Blossoming Song. Poor girl! She had handsome teeth, was fond of laughing and displaying them. Now a maid who loves to laugh is on the road to weeping. Handsome teeth ruin handsome eyes. So she was La Chante Fleury. She and her mother earned a precarious living. They had been very destitute since the death of the minstrel. Their embroidery did not bring them in more than six farthings a week, which does not amount to quite two Where were the days when Father Guy Bartant had earned twelve sous Parisian in a single coronation with a song? One winter, it was in the same year of 61, when the two women had neither fagots nor firewood, it was very cold, which gave La Chante Fleury such a fine colour that the men called her Paquette and many called her Pacarette, and she was ruined. "'Eustache, just let me see you bite that cake, if you dare!' We immediately perceived that she was ruined, one Sunday, when she came to church with a gold cross about her neck. At fourteen years of age, do you see? First it was the young vicomte de Cormantui, who has his bell-tower three leagues distant from Rheims. Then, Monsieur Henri de Triancourt, equerry to the king. Then less than that, Chiat de Bouillon, sergeant-at-arms. Then still descending, Guerry aubergeon carver to the king. Then Massé de Frepeux, barber to Monsieur the Dauphin. Then thevenin le king's cook. Then the men growing continually younger and less noble, she fell to Guillaume Racine, minstrel of the hurdy-gurdy, and to Thierry de Mer, lamplighter. Then poor Chantfleury, she belonged to every one. She had reached the last sou of her gold-piece. What shall I say to you, my damoiselles? At the coronation in the same year, sixty-one, twas she who made the bed of the king of the debauches, in the same year!" Mahiette sighed, and wiped away a tear which trickled from her eyes. This is no very extraordinary history," said Gervase, and in the whole of it I see nothing of any Egyptian women or children. "'Patience,' resumed Mahiette, "'you will see one child. In sixty-six, twill be sixteen years ago this month at St. Paul's Day, Paquette was brought to bed of a little girl. The unhappy creature! It was a great joy to her. She had long wished for a child. Her mother, good woman, who had never known what to do except to shut her eyes, her mother was dead. Paquette had no longer any one to love in the world, or any one to love her. La Chantefleurie had been a poor creature during the five years since her fall. She was alone, alone in this life. Fingers were pointed at her, she was hooted at in the streets, beaten by the sergeants, jeered at by the little boys in rags. And then twenty had arrived, and twenty is an old age for amorous women. Folly began to bring her in no more than her trade of embroidery in former days. For every wrinkle that came a crown fled. Winter became hard to her once more, wood became rare again in her brazier and bread in her cupboard. She could no longer work. Because in becoming voluptuous she had grown lazy, and she suffered much more because in growing lazy she had become voluptuous. At least that is the way in which Monsieur the Cure of Saint Remy explains why these women are colder and hungrier than other poor women when they are old. Yes, remarked Gervase, but the gipsies? One moment, Gervase, said Oudarde. Whose attention was less impatient. What would be left for the end if all were in the beginning? Continue, Mahiette, I entreat you, that poor Chantefleury. Mahiette went on. So she was very sad, very miserable, and furrowed her cheeks with tears. But in the midst of her shame, Her folly, her debauchery, it seemed to her that she should be less wild, less shameful, less dissipated, if there were something or someone in the world whom she could love, and who could love her. It was necessary that it should be a child, because only a child could be sufficiently innocent for that. She had recognized this fact after having tried to love a thief, the only man who wanted her but after a short time she perceived that the thief despised her. Those women of love require either a lover or a child to fill their hearts, otherwise they are very unhappy. As she could not have a lover, she turned wholly towards a desire for a child, and as she had not ceased to be pious, she made her constant prayer to the good God for it. So the good God took pity on her and gave her a little daughter. I will not speak to you of her joy. It was a fury of tears and caresses and kisses. She nursed her child herself, made swaddling-bands for it out of her coverlet, and only one which she had on her bed, and no longer felt either cold or hunger. She became beautiful once more, in consequence of it. An old maid makes a young mother. Gallantry claimed her once more. Men came to see La Chantefleurie. She found customers again for her merchandise, and out of all these horrors she made baby clothes, caps and bibs, bodices with shoulder-straps of lace, and tiny bonnets of satin, without even thinking of buying herself another coverlet. Master Eustache, I have already told you not to eat that cake. It was certain that little Agnes, that was the child's name, a baptismal name, for it was a long time since La Chantefleurie had had any surname, it is certain that that little one was more swathed in ribbons and embroideries than a dauphiness of dauphiny. Among other things, she had a pair of little shoes, the like of which King Louis XI certainly never had. Her mother had stitched and embroidered them herself she had lavished on them all the delicacies of her art of embroideress, and all the embellishments of a robe for the good virgin. They certainly were the two prettiest little pink shoes that could be seen. They were no longer than my thumb, and one had to see the child's little feet come out of them in order to believe that they had been able to get into them. Tis true that those little feet were so small, so pretty, so rosy rosier than the satin of the shoes. When you have children, Udard, you will find that there is nothing prettier than those little hands and feet." "'I ask no better,' said Udard with a sigh. "'But I am waiting until it shall suit the pleasure of Monsieur Andri Monnier. However, Paquette's child had more that was pretty about it besides its feet. I saw her when she was only four months old, She was a love, she had eyes larger than her mouth, and the most charming black hair which already curled. She would have been a magnificent brunette at the age of sixteen. Her mother became more crazy over her every day. She kissed her, caressed her, tickled her, washed her, decked her out, devoured her. She lost her head over her, she thanked God for her her pretty little rosy feet above all were an endless source of wonderment. They were a delirium of joy. She was always pressing her lips to them, and she could never recover from her amazement at their smallness. She put them into the tiny shoes, took them out, admired them, marvelled at them, looked at the light through them, was curious to see them try to walk on her bed, and would gladly have passed her life on her knees, putting on and taking off the shoes from those feet, as though they had been those of an infant Jesus." "'The tale is fair and good,' said Gervase, in a low tone. "'But where do gypsies come into all that?' "'Here,' replied Mahiette. "'One day there arrived in Rheims a very queer sort of people. They were beggars and vagabonds who were roaming over the country led by their duke and their counts. They were browned by exposure to the sun, they had closely curling hair, and silver rings in their ears. The women were still uglier than the men. They had blacker faces, which were always uncovered, a miserable frock on their bodies, an old cloth woven of cords bound upon their shoulder, and their hair hanging like the tail of a horse the children who scramble between their legs would have frightened as many monkeys. A band of excommunicates! All these persons came direct from Lower Egypt to Rhymes through Poland. The Pope had confessed them, it was said, and had prescribed them as penance to roam through the world for seven years without sleeping in a bed, and so they were called penancers and smelt horribly. It appears that they had formerly been Saracens which was why they believed in Jupiter, and claimed ten livres of tournay from all archbishops, bishops, and mitred abbots with croziers. A bull from the Pope empowered them to do that. They came to Rheims to tell fortunes in the name of the King of Algiers and the Emperor of Germany. You can readily imagine that no more was needed to cause the entrance to the town to be forbidden to them. Then the whole band camped with good grace outside the gate of Braine, on that hill where stands a mill beside the cavities of the ancient chalk-pits. And everybody in rhymes vied with his neighbor in going to see them. They looked at your hand and told you marvelous prophecies. They were equal to predicting to Judas that he would become Pope. Nevertheless, ugly rumors were in circulation in regard to them about children stolen, purses cut, and human flesh devoured. The wise people said to the foolish, "'Don't go there,' and then went themselves on the sly. It was an infatuation. The fact is that they said things fit to astonish a cardinal. Mothers triumphed greatly over their little ones after the Egyptians had read in their hands all sorts of marvels written in pagan and in Turkish. One had an emperor, another a pope, another a captain. Poor Chantefleurie was seized with curiosity. She wished to know about herself, and whether her pretty little Agnes would not become some day Empress of Armenia or something else. So she carried her to the Egyptians, and the Egyptian women fell to admiring the child, and to caressing it, and to kissing it with their black mouths, and to marvelling over its little band, alas to the great joy of the mother. They were especially enthusiastic over her pretty feet and shoes. The child was not yet a year old. She already lisped a little, laughed at her mother like a little mad thing, was plump and quite round, and possessed a thousand charming little gestures of the angels of Paradise. She was very much frightened by the Egyptians and wept. But her mother kissed her more warmly, and went away enchanted with the good fortune which the soothsayers had foretold for her Agnes. She was to be a beauty, virtuous, a queen. So she returned to her attic in the Rue Folleponnay, very proud of bearing with her a queen. The next day she took advantage of a moment when the child was asleep on her bed, for they always slept together gently left the door a little way open and ran to tell a neighbor in the rue de la sacherie that the day would come when her daughter agnes would be served at a table by the king of england and by the archduke of ethiopia and a hundred other marvels on her return hearing no cries on the staircase she said to herself good the child is still asleep she found her door wider open than she had left it but she entered poor mother and ran to the bed The child was no longer there. The place was empty. Nothing remained of the child but one of her pretty little shoes. She flew out of the room, dashed down the stairs, and began to beat her head against the wall, crying, My child! Who has my child? Who has taken my child? The street was deserted, the house isolated. No one could tell her anything about it. She went about the town, searched all the streets, ran hither and thither the whole day long, wild, beside herself, terrible, snuffing at doors and windows like a wild beast which has lost its young. She was breathless, disheveled, frightful to see, and there was a fire in her eyes which dried her tears. She stopped the passers-by and cried, "'My daughter! My daughter! My pretty little daughter!' If any one will give me back my daughter, I will be his servant, the servant of his dog. He shall eat my heart if he will. She met Monsieur le curé of Saint-Rémy and said to him, Monsieur, I will till the earth with my fingernails, but give me back my child. It was heart-rending, Oudard, and I saw a very hard man, Master Le Cabre, the procurator, weep. "'Ah, poor mother!' In the evening she returned home. During her absence a neighbour had seen two gypsies ascend up to it with a bundle in their arms, then descend again, after closing the door. After their departure something like the cries of a child were heard in Paquette's room. The mother burst into shrieks of laughter, ascended the stairs as though on wings, and entered. "'A frightful thing to tell, Oudard!' instead of her pretty little agnes so rosy and so fresh who was a gift of the good god a sort of hideous little monster lame one-eyed deformed was crawling and squalling over the floor she hid her eyes in horror oh said she have the witches transformed my daughter into this horrible animal they hastened to carry away the little clubfoot he would have driven her mad It was the monstrous child of some gypsy woman who had given herself to the devil. He appeared to be about four years old, and talked a language which was no human tongue. There were words in it which were impossible. La Chantefleurie flung herself upon the little shoe, all that remained to her of all that she loved. She remained so long motionless over it, mute, and without breath, that they thought she was dead. Suddenly she trembled all over, covered her relic with furious kisses, and burst out sobbing as though her heart were broken. I assure you that we were all weeping also. She said, "'Oh, my little daughter, my pretty little daughter, where art thou?' And it wrung your very heart. I weep still when I think of it. Our children are the marrow of our bones, you see. My poor Eustache, though art so fair, if you only knew how nice he is. Yesterday he said to me, I want to be a gendarme, that I do. Oh, my Eustache, if I were to lose thee! All at once La Chantefleurie rose and set out to run through Rhymes, screaming, To the Gypsies camp, to the Gypsies camp, police, to burn the witches! The gypsies were gone. It was pitch dark. They could not be followed. On the morrow, two leagues from Rheims, on a heath between Gyo and Tilly, the remains of a large fire were found, some ribbons which had belonged to Paquette's child, drops of blood, and the dung of a ram. The night just passed had been a Saturday. There was no longer any doubt that the Egyptians had held their sabbath on that heath and that they had devoured the child in company with Beelzebub, as the practice is among the Mahometans. When La Chantefleurie learned these horrible things, she did not weep, she moved her lips as though to speak, but could not. On the morrow her hair was grey, on the second day she had disappeared. "'Tis in truth a frightful tale,' said Udard, and one which would make even a Burgundian weep." I am no longer surprised," added Gervase, that fear of the gypsies should spur you on so sharply. "'And you did all the better,' resumed Udard, to flee with your Eustache just now, since these also are gypsies from Poland." "'No,' said Gervase, "'tis said that they come from Spain and Catalonia." "'Catalonia? "'Tis possible,' replied Udard. Pologne, Catalon, Vallon, I always confound those three provinces. One thing is certain, that they are gipsies. Who certainly, added Gervase, have teeth long enough to eat little children. I should not be surprised if La Smarelda ate a little of them also, though she pretends to be dainty." Her white goat knows tricks that are too malicious for there not to be some impiety underneath it all. Mayette walked on in silence. She was absorbed in that reverie which is, in some sort, the continuation of a mournful tale, and which ends only after having communicated the emotion, from vibration to vibration, even to the very last fibers of the heart. Nevertheless, Gervase addressed her. And did they ever learn what became of La Chante Fleury? Mayette made no reply. Gervase repeated her question and shook her arm, calling her by name. Mayette appeared to awaken from her thoughts. What became of La Chante Fleury? she asked, repeating mechanically the words whose impression was still fresh in her ear, then making an effort to recall her attention to the meaning of her words. Ah! she continued briskly. No one ever found out." She added, after a pause, Some said that she had been seen to quit Rhymes at nightfall by the Flechambeau gate, others at daybreak by the old Basset gate. A poor man found her gold cross hanging at the stone cross in the field where the fair is held. It was that ornament which had wrought her ruin in sixty-one. It was a gift from the handsome Vicomte de Cormantui, her first lover. Paquette had never been willing to part with it, wretched as she had been. She had clung to it as to life itself. So when we saw that cross abandoned, we all thought that she was dead. Nevertheless, there were people of the Cabaret Levante who said that they had seen her pass along the road to Paris, walking on the pebbles with her bare feet. But in that case, she must have gone out through the Porte La Vallée, and all this does not agree. Or, to speak more truly, I believe that she actually did depart by the Porte de vallée but departed from this world. I do not understand you," said Gervase. "La Velle," replied Mayette, with a melancholy smile, "is the river." Poor Chantefleurie," said Udard, with a shiver. Drowned," drowned. resumed Mahiette, who could have told good father Guibertant when he passed under the bridge of Tignot, with the current, singing in his barge, that one day his dear little Paquette would also pass beneath that bridge, but without song or boat. "'And the little shoe?' asked Gervaise. "'Disappeared with the mother,' replied Mahiet. "'Poor little Shoe,' said Udard. Udard, a big and tender woman, would have been well pleased to sigh in company with Mayette. But Gervase, more curious, had not finished her questions. "'And the monster?' she said suddenly to Mayette. "'What monster?' inquired the latter. "'The little gypsy monster left by the sorceresses in Chantfleury's chamber, in exchange for her daughter. What did you do with it?' I hope you drowned it also." "'No,' replied Mayette. "'What? You burned it, then? In sooth, that is more just. A witch-child!' "'Neither the one nor the other Gervase. Monseigneur the Archbishop interested himself in the child of Egypt, exercised it, blessed it, removed the devil carefully from its body, and sent it to Paris to be exposed on the wooden bed at Notre-Dame as a foundling." "'Those bishops,' grumbled Gervaise, "'because they are learned, they do nothing like anybody else. I just put it to you, Udard, the idea of placing the devil among the foundlings—for that little monster was assuredly the devil. Well, Mayette, what did they do with it in Paris? I am quite sure that no charitable person wanted it. I do not know," replied the Rimois. 'Twas just at that time that my husband bought the office of notary at Bern, two leagues from the town, and we were no longer occupied with that story. Besides, in front of Bern stand the two hills of Cernay, which hide the towers of the cathedral in rhymes from view." While chatting thus, the three worthy bourgeoisie had arrived at the Place de Greve. In their absorption, they had passed the public breviary of the Tour-Roland without stopping, and took their way mechanically towards the pillory around which the throng was growing more dense with every moment. It was probable that the spectacle which at that moment attracted all looks in that direction would have made them forget completely the rat-hole, and the halt which they intended to make there if Big Eustache, six years of age, whom Mayette was dragging along by the hand, had not abruptly recalled the object to them. "'Mother!' he said, as though some instinct warned him that the rat-hole was behind them. "'Can I eat the cake now?' If Eustache had been more adroit, that is to say, less greedy, he would have continued to wait, and would only have hazarded that simple question, "'Mother, can I eat the cake now?' on their return to the university, to master André Mounier's Rue Madame la Valence, when he had the two arms of the Seine and the five bridges of the city between the rat-hole and the cake. This question, highly imprudent at the moment when Eustache put it, aroused Yet's attention. "'By the way,' she exclaimed, "'we are forgetting the recluse. Show me the rat-hole that I may carry her her cake.' Immediately," said Udard, "'tis a charity." But this did not suit Eustache. "'Stop! My cake!' said he, rubbing both ears alternatively with his shoulders, which, in such cases, is the supreme sign of discontent. The three women retraced their steps, and, on arriving in the vicinity of the Tour-Roland, Udard said to the other two, We must not all three gaze into the hole at once, for fear of alarming the recluse. Do you two pretend to read the Dominus in the breviary, while I thrust my nose into the aperture? The recluse knows me a little. I will give you warning when you can approach." She proceeded alone to the window. At the moment when she looked in, a profound pity was depicted on all her features, and her frank, gay visage, altered its expression and color as abruptly as though it had passed from a ray of sunlight to a ray of moonlight. Her eye became humid, her mouth contracted, like that of a person on the point of weeping. A moment later she laid her finger on her lips and made a sign to Mahiette to draw near and look. Mahiette, much touched, stepped up in silence on tiptoe, as though approaching the bedside of a dying person. It was, in fact, a melancholy spectacle which presented itself to the eyes of the two women as they gazed through the grating of the rat-hole, neither stirring nor breathing. The cell was small, broader than it was long, with an arched ceiling, and viewed from within, it bore a considerable resemblance to the interior of a huge bishop's mitre. On the bare flagstones which formed the floor, in one corner, a woman was sitting or rather crouching. Her chin rested on her knees, which her crossed arms pressed forcibly to her breast. Thus doubled up, clad in a brown sack which enveloped her entirely in large folds, her long gray hair pulled over in front, falling over her face and along her legs nearly to her feet. She presented, at the first glance, only a strange form outlined against the dark background of the cell. A sort of dusky triangle, which the ray of daylight falling through the opening cut roughly into two shades, the one somber, the other illuminated. It was one of those specters, half light, half shadow, such as one beholds in dreams and in the extraordinary work of Goya, pale, motionless, sinister, crouching over a tomb, or leaning against the grating of a prison cell. It was neither a woman, nor a man, nor a living being, nor a definite form. It was a figure, a sort of vision, in which the real and the fantastic intersected each other, like darkness and day. It was with difficulty that one distinguished, beneath her hair which spread to the ground, a gaunt and severe profile. Her dress barely allowed the extremity of a bare foot to escape which contracted on the hard, cold pavement. The little of human form, of which one caught a sight beneath this envelope of mourning, caused a shudder. That figure, which one might have supposed to be riveted to the flagstones, appeared to possess neither movement, nor thought, nor breath. Lying in January in that thin linen sack, lying on a granite floor, without fire in the gloom of a cell whose oblique air-hole allowed only the cold breeze, but never the sun, to enter from without. She did not appear to suffer, or even to think. One would have said that she had turned to stone with the cell, ice with the season. Her hands were clasped, her eyes fixed. At first sight one took her for a spectre, at the second for a statue. Nevertheless, at intervals, her blue lips half opened to admit a breath, and trembled, but as dead and as mechanical as the leaves which the wind sweeps aside. Nevertheless, from her dull eyes there escaped a look, an ineffable look, a profound, lugubrious, imperturbable look, incessantly fixed upon a corner of the cell which could not be seen from without a gaze which seemed to fix all the somber thoughts of that soul in distress upon some mysterious object. Such was the creature who had received, from her habitation, the name of the recluse, and from her garment the name of the sacked nun. The three women—for Gervase had rejoined Mahiette and Udard—gazed through the window. Their heads intercepted the feeble light in the cell, without the wretched being whom they thus deprived of it seeming to pay any attention to them. "'Do not let us trouble her,' said Udard, in a low voice. "'She is in her ecstasy. She is praying.' Meanwhile, Mayette was gazing with ever-increasing anxiety at that wan, withered, disheveled head, and her eyes filled with tears. This is very singular," she murmured. She thrust her head through the bars, and succeeded in casting a glance at the corner where the gaze of the unhappy woman was immovably riveted. When she withdrew her head from the window, her countenance was inundated with tears. What do you call that woman? she asked Udard. Udard replied, We call her Sister Goudoulet. And I, returned Mahiette, call her Paquette la Chantefleurie." Then laying her finger on her lips, she motioned to the astounded Udard to thrust her head through the window and look. Udard looked and beheld, in the corner where the eyes of the recluse were fixed in that somber ecstasy, a tiny shoe of pink satin, embroidered with a thousand fanciful designs in gold and silver. Gervaise looked after Oudard, and then the three women, gazing upon the unhappy mother, began to weep. But neither their looks nor their tears disturbed the recluse. Her hands remained clasped, her lips mute, her eyes fixed, and that little shoe, thus gazed at, broke the heart of any one who knew her history. The three women had not yet uttered a single word. They dared not speak even in a low voice. This deep silence, this deep grief, this profound oblivion, in which everything had disappeared except one thing, produced upon them the effect of the grand altar at Christmas or Easter. They remained silent. They meditated. They were ready to kneel. It seemed to them that they were ready to enter a church on the day of Tenebrae. At length Gervase, the most curious of the three, and consequently the least sensitive, tried to make the recluse speak. "'Sister! Sister Goudelet! She repeated this call three times, raising her voice each time. The recluse did not move. Not a word, not a glance, not a sigh, not a sign of life. Udard, in her turn, in a sweeter, more caressing voice, "'Sister!' said she. "'Sister Saint-Gaudelais!' The same silence, the same immobility. "'A singular woman!' exclaimed Gervase, and one not to be moved by a catapult. "'Perchance she is deaf,' said Eudard. "'Perhaps she is blind,' added Gervase. "'Dead, perchance,' returned Mayette. It is certain that if the soul had not already quitted this inert, sluggish, lethargic body, it had at least retreated and concealed itself in depths whither the perceptions of the exterior organs no longer penetrated. Then we must leave the cake on the window, said Udard. Some scamp will take it. What shall we do to rouse her?" who up to that moment had been diverted by a little carriage drawn by a large dog, which had just passed, suddenly perceived that his three conductresses were gazing at something through the window, and, curiosity taking possession of him in his turn, he climbed upon a stone post, elevated himself on tiptoe, and applied his fat, red face to the opening, shouting, "'Mother, let me see it too!' At the sound of this clear, fresh, ringing child's voice, the recluse trembled. She turned her head with the sharp, abrupt movement of a steel spring. Her long, fleshless hands cast aside the hair from her brow, and she fixed upon the child bitter, astonished, desperate eyes. This glance was but a lightning flash. "'Oh, my God!' she suddenly exclaimed, hiding her head on her knees and it seemed as though her hoarse voice tore her chest as it passed from it. "'Do not show me those of others!' "'Good day, madam,' said the child gravely. Nevertheless this shock had, so to speak, awakened the recluse. A long shiver traversed her frame from head to foot. Her teeth chattered. She half raised her head and said, pressing her elbows against her hips, and clasping her feet in her hands as though to warm them. Oh, how cold it is! Poor woman! said Udard, with great compassion. Would you like a little fire? She shook her head in a token of refusal. Well, resumed Udard, presenting her with a flagon, here is some hippocras which will warm you. Drink it. Again she shook her head, looked at Udard fixedly, and replied, "'Water!' Udard persisted. "'No, sister, that is no beverage for January. You must drink a little Hippocras, and eat this leavened cake of maize which we have baked for you.' She refused the cake which Mahi had offered to her, and said, "'Black bread!' "'Come,' said Gervase, seized in her turn with an impulse of charity, and unfastening her woollen cloak. Here is a cloak which is a little warmer than yours.' She refused the cloak, as she had refused the flagon and the cake, and replied, "'A sack!' "'But,' resumed the good dard, "'you must have perceived to some extent that yesterday was a festival.' "'I do perceive it,' said the recluse. "'Tis two days now since I have had any water in my crock.' She added, after a silence, "'Tis a festival! I am forgotten! People do well! Why should the world think of me when I do not think of it? Cold charcoal makes cold ashes!" And as though fatigued with having said so much, she dropped her head on her knees again. The simple and charitable Oudard, who fancied that she understood from her last words that she was complaining of the cold, replied innocently, Then you would like a little fire?" "'Fire!' said the sacked nun, with a strange accent. "'And will you also make a little for the poor little one who has been beneath the sod for these fifteen years?' Every limb was trembling, her voice quivered, her eyes flashed, she had raised herself upon her knees. Suddenly she extended her thin white hand towards the child who was regarding her with a look of astonishment take away that child she cried the egyptian woman is about to pass by then she fell face downward on the earth and her forehead struck the stone with the sound of one stone against another stone the three women thought her dead a moment later however she moved and they beheld her drag herself, on her knees and elbows, to the corner where the little shoe was. Then they dared not look. They no longer saw her. But they heard a thousand kisses and a thousand sighs, mingled with heart-rending cries, and dull blows like those of a head in contact with a wall. Then, after one of these blows, so violent that all three of them staggered, they heard no more. "'Can she have killed herself?' said Gervase, venturing to pass her head through the air hole. "'Sister! Sister Goudelet!' "'Sister Goudelet!' repeated Dudard. "'Ah! Oh, good heavens! She no longer moves!' resumed Gervaise. "'Is she dead? Goudelet! Goudelet!' Mahiette, choked to such a point that she could not speak, made an effort. Wait said she, then, bending towards the window, Paquette, she said, paquette le A child who innocently blows upon the badly ignited fuse of a bomb, and makes it explode in his face, is no more terrified than was Mayette at the effect of that name, abruptly launched into the cell of Sister Goudelet. The recluse trembled all over, rose erect on her bare feet and leaped at the window with eyes so glaring that Mayette and Udard and the other woman and the child recoiled even to the parapet of the key. Meanwhile the sinister face of the recluse appeared pressed to the grating of the air-hole. "'Oh! Oh!' she cried, with an appalling laugh, "'Tis the Egyptian who is calling me!" At that moment a scene which was passing at the pillory caught her wild eye. Her brow contracted with horror. She stretched her two skeleton arms from her cell, and shrieked in a voice which resembled a death-rattle, "'So, tis thou once more, daughter of Egypt! Tis thou who callest me, stealer of children! Well, be thou accursed, 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 accursed!' End of Book 6, Chapter 3